0: Open your Bibles with me. Please open your Bibles to start to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. When I asked you a few minutes ago, in, before we sang Psalm 89 and verse 1, that those mercies there are not His daily mercies to you, it's true because of the context of Psalm 89. Yet I do not want, and nor did I intend, that God doesn't have mercies for us in lots of other ways. God does have lots of mercies for us day by day, and His faithfulness every day is renewed every morning, according to the book of Lamentations. But in that particular context, which I grew up singing and not fully appreciating, I want you to appreciate that the mercies and faithfulness there is His covenant with David, that David's son would sit on his throne and be our leader and commander forever, to see us through this life and to see us into heaven by giving us the gift of eternal life. Now we sang there, that with my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 45 is my favorite psalm, as you know. Psalm 45 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a love song, as it tells you at the beginning in the introduction, if you have the scribal notations and the introduction by the Hebrew scribes over top of verse 1, it says the majesty and grace of Christ's kingdom to the chief musician upon Shoshanim for the sons of Korah, Maskel, a song of loves. In verse 1, my heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. That is the introduction. And then verses 2 through 16 are all about the Lord Jesus Christ being fairer than the children of men, and loving us and marrying us. It's a love song. The Apostle Paul quotes it in Hebrews chapter 1 because it is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have verse 17, which is its conclusion. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. And that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I will make the name of the king to be remembered in all generations so that, and as a result of it, people will praise him forever and ever. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. So we come to Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12 is about singing as part of the worship of God. Isaiah 12 is unusual. It isn't going to tell us anything about Sennacherib. It isn't going to be about Hezekiah. It isn't going to be about the attire of the haughty women of Israel, like Isaiah 3 was. It's a psalm in the middle of uh, the prophet Isaiah. It's only six verses long. But I hope that it will grip us that personally, on an individual basis, we'll want to fulfill its content, and that congregationally, as a church, we will want to fulfill its content. The theme is very simple for these six verses. The church's joy would be great in the way of prophecy, and it should be great, and it would praise the Lord Jehovah for His gospel salvation through Jesus Christ, His Son. That's the theme. I gave you a simple outline. It can be split in half, and you will see that as we work our way through it. The first three verses are the church rejoices personally. The first verse is in the first person. The second verse is the same, and you're going to see that it's personal in the first three verses of worshiping God, and then it moves to congregational worship of God in verses 4 through 6. So the outline is the church is, the church rejoices personally, then the church rejoices congregationally because God chose congregational worship. Right. For loners like me, He made a choice that my disposition and my temperamental preferences and tendencies are wrong as far as His worship. He wants us to worship Him personally, and so we better be doing that, but He also wants us to worship corporately or in a body like this. And he's chosen that in the Old Testament, he chose that in the New Testament. If there was ever a time for loners, it would have been the time of the patriarchs when Abraham and others had isolated visions and they worshipped God and built altars, sometimes with or without their families, but that's a long time ago, and it's long gone. And so we're going to have congregational worship in verses 4 through 6. This is the simplest chapter in Isaiah, with one theme throughout, Praise to God as Redeemer. You know, we are bound to give thanks always to God Amen. for saving us. That's right. And so Isaiah 12 matches up with 2 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul wrote, after describing the great whore of Rome and the man of sin, and God sending strong delusion for men to believe lies, that they all might be damned to receive not the love of the truth. That's what it says, 2 Thessalonians 2. 9 through 12, a terrible indictment of our race and a terrible judgment of God upon our race. It then says, but, oh, I love those inspired disjunctives Amen. to give us a new thought that is different from what was just given, but we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Amen. Oh, the Lord has changed us and made us very different about His gospel truth concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 12 is rejoicing and praising God as our Redeemer. I have told you that in the breakdown of the whole book of Isaiah, chapters 6 through 12 can be called the book of Emmanuel because chapters 6 through 12 have quite a bit about the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapters 13 through 24 don't. They're very different. Chapter 13 is very different. We could do it, and it would be legitimate in the sight of God, but I wasn't ready to preach on Isaiah 13 in the second service today, then have the Lord's Supper. Isaiah 13 is about the Medes and the Persians destroying Babylon, the great enemy of the church. Old Testament and New. Old Testament, it was the literal Babylon. New Testament, it's the figurative Babylon of the Roman Catholic Church, the great whore of Babylon. But Isaiah 13 is just destruction and mayhem as the Medes and the Persians under Darius the Mede and then Cyrus the Persian destroyed Babylon. That's what the whole chapter is about. And it goes from 13 to 24 in the destruction of nations that were enemies of Israel. Chapter 12 ends... The book of Emmanuel. Do you remember with me? In Isaiah 6, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. Amen. And I heard him saying, who will go for us? And whom shall I send? Then I said, here am I. Send me. That was Isaiah 6. But then God said, Isaiah, I want you to go preach and make the hearts of these people fat, close their eyes and shut up their ears so that I won't have to save them. I won't have to heal them. This nation has rebelled against me for so long. I want your ministry to be a damning ministry of them. And Isaiah says, Lord, how long? This is Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Of course, you've hardly ever heard these verses before because everyone wants to end at verse 8. But verses 9 through 13 are, how long will this be? And the Lord says, until I totally destroy and waste this nation but yet in it shall be a tenth. Yes, right. I will preserve an elect remnant tenth, like the life in a tree that casts its leaves, and it looks dead, and the nation looked dead, but there was a tenth in it. So we, we thank the Lord Amen. for saving a tenth. Yes. And if it wasn't for His grace, there wouldn't be a tenth, and there wouldn't be a one right. Because there wouldn't be any if it wasn't for His grace. And then in chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive, and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8, and you might want to look at it because it's a passage that none of us are very familiar with. It's verse 8, And he shall pass through, that's Assyria. The Assyrian king is going to bring his armies into Judah. Isaiah 8, 8, He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the net, And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. Judah was important for God to save because the Emmanuel of chapter 7 was going to come out of Judah. And so the land itself is called O Emmanuel. And it's important for us to remember that. We're leading up through the book of Emmanuel toward chapter 12. Verse 14, he shall be for a sanctuary. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. But for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense. See, here it is again. Jesus would be offensive to the Jews, and he would cause them to stumble to both the houses of Israel. That is, the ten tribes in the north, the two tribes in the south, for a gin and for a snare. Those are traps to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Peter quoted this verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 8, to describe the blinding effect of the Lord Jesus Christ, because He wasn't what they wanted. They wanted a leader and a commander like David that would deliver them from Rome and make their nation preeminent in earth's affairs again. And Jesus didn't come to give something that low. Jesus came to give us eternal life Amen. and a new heaven and a new earth. Right. Is that better than not paying taxes to Rome? You know, when they had it their way, Solomon charged them more than Rome ever charged them. It doesn't work when you get it your way. We want it His way, and His way is glorious. Then chapter 9, look at verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's the gospel light that came up in the area of Galilee. Look at the final words of verse 1. In Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them hath the light shined. That's the gospel preaching of John and Jesus in the New Testament. And then, of course, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the government of the kingdom of God. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And don't go read verse 6 without 7 of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord was going to apply his zeal to make the son of David, which was also his son, the leader and commander of his people, to deliver them, not just from the Assyrians and not just from the Babylonians, but from sin, death, hell, and the grave. Amen. What a Savior we have. Right. And He's made peace with God for us so that He is the Prince of Peace, the leader and commander of His people. Now in chapter 10, it was obscure. You know, we've all read over it a thousand times and just blew right past it and didn't appreciate that Jesus was in Isaiah 10. Now, Isaiah 10 is about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, being an axe in the hand of God, verse 15, and other verses throughout this chapter. And it is a favorite chapter of our church in the book of Isaiah because it is God mocking the rulers of this world. But, remember in verse 27, Why is God going to save Judah? It shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed. A serious dominance of Judah and threatening of them would be destroyed because of the anointing. Right. Right. What anointing? The anointing of David to carry through his sons to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Was Jesus anointed with the Holy Ghost above all others when He was baptized by John the Baptist? Yeah. Absolutely He was. And was it called an anointing? Over and over. How Jesus Christ was anointed with the Holy Ghost and went about doing good, Peter preached to Cornelius. It is the message of the Bible right. that God anointed His Son, but He didn't anoint Him with a little bit of oil like Samuel did David. He anointed Him with the Holy Ghost above measure. Right. Amen. According to John 3 and verse 34, And so we had that there in chapter 10, then chapter 11. It's just all about the Lord Jesus Christ, all of it in four parts, verses 1 through 5, how that the Spirit of the Lord, when He would come upon the Lord Jesus Christ, would make Him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, verse 3. And you know, verses 1 through 5 are fulfilled in the Gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he was able to handle his enemies and his friends in his preaching. He was perfect in wisdom. He was a perfect leader and commander. And his kingdom was one of wisdom, righteousness in verse 4, and faithfulness in verse 5. Then, verses 6 through 9, is a description of the changed character of the New Testament kingdom of Jesus Christ. There would be peace among all of its members. Those animals are not to be understood literally, like so many have in the Bible story books that I was taught when I was a child. These aren't literal animals. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ would be one of peace, love, and unity. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. And we've got wolves in this congregation by nature, and there's one in your pulpit. And then there's lambs in this congregation. Little gentle Souls, little gentle children, and we lie down together and we have a wonderful relationship here. This is the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he changed the natures of men. The most terrifying man in the New Testament was Saul of Tarsus. And he became a gentle nurse. And he loved individual souls. A total transformation of the man. You say, how do you know this is the New Testament? When did the Spirit of God come on Jesus Christ? the branch of Jesse, in verses 1 through 5, at his baptism by John. Then you go to verse 10, and verse 10 says, "...in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious." When were the Gentiles converted? But in the New Testament era of the book of Acts, first of all by Peter with Cornelius, then by Paul, as he went out and preached as the apostle of the Gentiles." and Gentiles were converted, and the rest that God gave through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed glorious. Amen. And so forth. We went through the rest of that chapter, and we're at chapter 12. And I've just spent a lot of time in review to tell you why 12 is there. 12 is a psalm of praise because of the book of Emmanuel. And it's ending this seven-chapter section that is so much about the Lord Jesus Christ and deliverance. You know, there was a deliverance from Assyria, and there would be in the future a deliverance from Babylon, but this is a deliverance through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles would be included in it. And So we come to chapter 12. You want to understand the timing, or you want to appreciate it. Verses 1 through 3 are in the first person to God. Notice in verse 1, I will praise thee. That is, I will praise Thee, first and second person. God's in the second person, Thee, I will praise Thee. But notice verse 4, praise the Lord. That shifts the Lord to the third person, call upon His name. His name's in the third person, so that's congregational worship. I just want you to see that distinction. And we'll see more of it here as we get going. Let me read to you the first verse of the first half. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise Thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Amen. Amen. In that day, notice that we are given a timing verse, a timing phrase here, for us to know that it is the era of the gospel of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that day is used verse 1, that day is used verse 4, and that day was used twice in chapter 11, verses 10 in verse 11, for the New Testament gospel era of the Lord Jesus Christ at his first coming and his apostles in that day. That day, that is a demonstrative adjective telling you that a day has recently been considered that you should locate and find that this section right here belongs with that day that's already been described. And that day is the New Testament era of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in that day. We want the timing. We know about the preceding chapter. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ at his first coming and how he gathered together the remnant Jews from all over the world by the gospel into the real Zion and the real Jerusalem that counts. The earthly Jerusalem hasn't counted for 2,000 years. So that Paul would say that we have here no continuing city. Our city is the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews chapter 12. Our city is the heavenly Jerusalem, Galatians chapter 4. Mount Zion above is what counts now, not Mount Zion on earth, Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus, when he left that city, he said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now at the beginning of his ministry, he had called it his father's house. But when he left it the last time, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. And then he desolated it by the Roman armies in 70 AD. Right. And so we saw in the second half of Isaiah chapter 11 that God, through the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles, would gather these remnant Jews together into local churches in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he did it. Right. So that James, when, he, when James opens up his epistle of James, James, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Twelve tribes scattered abroad. And so that list of names back there in chapter 11, verse 11, that list of names is fulfilled in the, gospel, in the epistle of James when he said to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Peter wrote the same way in 1 Peter chapter 1 because 1 Peter chapter 1, Paul, Peter is writing to those converts of Paul showing them that they were in agreement. Just like Paul wrote Hebrews to the Jews in Judea to show that Peter and Paul were in agreement. Right. And then, when you go read Acts chapter 2, and you get into Acts chapter 2, and the believers are sitting in a house, and the house is filled with a mighty rushing wind. And they began to speak in other languages. And then it lists about 18 other languages. Right. Jews, devout men, had come to Jerusalem. And so here the gospel is going out from a redneck backwoods fisherman from the Galilee area of Israel, and there's 18 different groups of Jews from around the world, out of the whole world. They've come there, and they're hearing the gospel for the first time, and they only need to listen to it for a few minutes, and they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. And Isaiah 11 is is being rapidly fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And we get to 10, and there's us Gentiles from Italy, not me. We have Cornelius of the Italian band being converted with his household. And then we get to chapter 13, and Paul's across the Mediterranean Sea, and Gentiles are being converted. And so here we are at this blast of praise in Isaiah chapter 12. And we know what it's talking about, because it's talking about the previous chapter, that day. Because you have that day in verse 10 of chapter 11, and you have that day in verse 11 of chapter 11, and you have that day in verse 1 of chapter 12, and you have that day in verse 4 of chapter 12. What day is it? The Gospel day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, being unveiled to the nation of Israel by His baptism by John the Baptist, him being crucified, rising from the dead, sitting at His Father's right hand, commissioning His apostles, and they went out and gathered the Jews together first, then they went and gathered the Gentiles after that, and they built up the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ by Jews and Gentiles, one body, no more distinction between the two of them, there's one. Amen. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise as Paul taught in Galatians chapter 3. God had been angry with Israel and Judah and had sent Assyria to punish them. And he had delivered them, and he was going to deliver them yet again, and it would be a gospel deliverance, and he would include Gentiles in it, as verse 10 of chapter 11 told us. And the saved Gentiles would be very glad as well. It is our great duty and privilege to fulfill the prophecy in charge of this thanksgiving that begins in verse 1. And in that day, in the gospel era, Thou shalt say, O oh Lord, I will praise thee. And that should be our personal ambition for our lives. Right. Why do you breathe? Why do I breathe? Why are you alive? Why am I alive? To praise God. Amen. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Right. We were made for him. Right. It's all about him. Amen. And so these words ought to flow from our hearts and our minds and cause us to give praise. O Lord, I will praise thee. In the gospel era, Gentiles have been praising God for 2,000 years. We want to praise God. We've already praised God this morning by our praying and our singing. We want to praise Him. We want to keep on praising Him. And we want to praise Him individually because this is individual. It's going to get corporate. It's going to get congregational in verse 4. O Lord, I will praise thee. No one else can praise for You. Is this Your commitment? O oh Lord, I will praise Thee. Why? Why should we praise God? Because He was angry with us and because His anger is turned away and You're comforting me. Amen. You. Now how much does this mean to you if we hadn't read through Isaiah to this point? Did we learn in chapter 9 and chapter 12 by four repetitions... 9:12, 9, 917, 921, 104. Four repetitions. His anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, right. with a rod of chastening on his people. It says it exact. look back there. look back there at 104. Pick any one of those verses: 9:12, 9, 917, 921, or 104. They all have the same sentence to end the verse. Look at 10:4. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. When God is angry, even with his people, it is serious business because he's a thrice holy God and when we sin, his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. And that isn't a helping hand, that's a chastening, punishing hand. And so we read it four times. And so when we come to Isaiah 12, 1, I will praise thee and here's the reasons. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. It hadn't been turned away in chapter 9 and chapter 10. It was terrible for Judah. It was worse for Israel. His hand was still stretched out in judgment. But notice what we sing for. O Lord, I will praise Thee. Now we're Gentiles. We've never met an Assyrian. We've never seen a Babylonian. We've never had our crops destroyed. There's still Wheaties on the shelf at the store. We've never seen any of those things that we read about here. But you know what? We were saved from worse things. You know, that's just illustrative of God's delivering mercy in the New Testament era. The real salvation is from sin and its consequences in hell and the devil and the grave and death and and eternal judgment. That's what we're saved from. So when we look at the words, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me because thou art a holy God, and I'm a sinner, and when I stand before thee, I deserve to be cast into hell. Thine anger is turned away because you were pleased to bruise the Lord Jesus Christ in my stead and deliver me. Amen. And thou comfortedest me, you send the gospel to tell me that it's all over. Right. Children, it's all over. I punished your older brother. You're not going to be punished. Heaven's waiting for you. An eternal inheritance. And so much do I love you because of what your older brother did for you. I'm going to adopt you as my sons and daughters. That is just an incredible gospel story. And so, oh Lord, I will praise thee. You were angry with me, but your anger is turned away. 9.12, 9.12, it wasn't turned away. 9.17, it wasn't turned away. 9.21, it wasn't turned away. You say, why do you repeat yourself so much? Because God the Holy Spirit did. That's right. if I did. If I said it one time less, I wouldn't give you the weight that the Holy Spirit wants you to have. 10.4, His anger was not turned away, but His hand was stretched out still. Right. And as I tried to show you recently at a communion service of ours, when those in hell have suffered for 1,000 years his anger will not be turned away and his hand will be stretched out still and when they have suffered in hell for 1 million years his anger will not be turned away but his hand will be stretched out still because the Bible says the smoke of their torment ascends up into heaven forever and ever amen, That's right. amen. Gentiles should praise 10 times as much as Jews that's right. here we are look at that verse O Lord I will praise thee though thou wast angry with me thine anger is turned away and thou comfortest me and the message of comfort came how, does, how is it described in Isaiah chapter 40 what are the opening words comfort ye comfort ye my people and tell them that their sins are purged that's a great message Amen. thank you Lord so what should we do? We should praise Him. And we should do it individually. Amen. And just shout, shout out His praise. I'm going to get to shout in a minute. Um, o Lord, I will praise Thee. And it tells us why. It couldn't be any plainer. Let's go to verse 2. Behold. Now this is allowing for an audience. But it's still individual praise. Because notice, behold, God is my salvation. It doesn't say, behold, Thou art my salvation. It jumps God to the third person because others can be listening, but it's his declaration and testimony in front of them. See, verse 1 didn't need anybody. And, I, and that's... I'm trying to communicate... Verse 1 doesn't need anyone. You can do this in your closet. You can do this in your car. You can do this on your motorcycle, but be careful, then. You can do this wherever you are alone. You can say, O oh Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me individually thine anger is turned away and thou comfortest me it's all individual personal remember one of the attributes of god that he's shown us when we studied the nature of god he is divisible Amen. meaning that he can be fully your god he can be fully my god and there's no dilution of god right. and then he can be fully your god and fully your god and that's four ways and he's still not diluted because he's fully divisible he's my god and he's your god and we can say, O oh Lord, I will praise Thee. Amen. But we're at verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. He, not Thee. It's shifted here. No- notice it. This is a testimony that when it's made and others hear it, Their hearts are encouraged. Their faith is built up. When we hear somebody praise like they do in verse 2, Behold, because of what He's done for me, here's what I have to say about my God. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. And this is taken from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, where Moses began his song with these words, He is my strength and my song. He is become my salvation. That's from Exodus 15. So I just want you to know the second half of verse 2 here in Isaiah 12 is from the song of Moses and its opening lines. Behold is to get the attention of others so that they can hear our testimony. Behold, God is my salvation. He is my strength and my song. What I like to sing about is almighty God. My strength is God. Because when we were yet without strength, Christ died for us. He's our strength. Without His strength, we shall drop into an everlasting hell. And we deserve to be there. But by His strength. And so, He is my strength and my song. He's the one I want to sing about. He also has become my salvation. Behold, I just, God is my salvation. Right. God saved me. Who saved Hezekiah and the remnant Jews that were inside the walls of Jerusalem from Sennacherib the Assyrian? When Sennacherib and Rabshakeh were outside the walls mocking the Jews and saying, no other city has been able to hold out against us, no other God has been able to help their people. In fact, to show you how strong we are, if you'll give us a deposit... We'll put up the 2,000 horses if you can even find 2,000 men in Jerusalem to ride them. Then we'll have ourselves a little battle out here. We'll put up the horses just mocking the Jews. And you know, Hezekiah came in and laid that letter before the Lord. And the Lord told Hezekiah through Isaiah, through this prophet, he will not shoot an arrow against this city. He will not set foot in this city. He will not build one embankment against this city. What happened that night? One hundred eighty-five thousand battle-hardened experienced Assyrian soldiers in the morning were, as the Bible says, all dead corpses. Amen. And with shamed face, Sennacherib went back to his capital city of Nineveh of the Assyrian Empire because God was the salvation. Amen. How do we get out of hell? God is our salvation. He did it all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hezekiah didn't contribute to the 185,000 dead soldiers. He didn't poison the water out there. The Lord did it all by the angel of the Lord. How do we get to heaven? By the Son of God, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Behold, God is my salvation. And you say to me, Pastor, how do you know to press that in a gospel way? That's why I took so long in my introduction. Because of the timing verse of verses of verse 10 and 11 of chapter 11 and verse 1 of chapter 11 and the fact that in verse 1 here and in verse 4 we have that little expression in that day, that day, this day, that day, not any day, not many days, that day, the day under consideration, the gospel era of Jesus Christ. Behold, God is my salvation. And did they praise like this in Jerusalem? when Jesus entered that city for the last time, did they take their clothes off and throw them down? Did those children cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David? To the Son of David. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? They're saying that you're the prophesied Son of David. Tell them to shut up. Jesus said, if I was to tell them to be quiet... The stones would cry out, Oh, that is our leader and commander. He is the son of David, and he is a perfectly victorious captain of his people. The captain of our salvation is what the Bible tells us. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Certainly we shouldn't be afraid of anything in this life, but we shouldn't be afraid of eternal damnation either, because God is our salvation through Jesus Christ, his Son. I will trust and not be afraid. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah said in Jonah chapter 2. Salvation is of the Lord because God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Why? Why will you never be afraid? For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. The Lord Jehovah provides all the strength to keep me safe forever in this world and in the world to come. And he's my song because I want to sing about the only true and living God there is. And his name is the Lord Jehovah. Give me a minute on this unique, rare occurrence in your Bibles. When you have the Lord Jehovah like this, and the Lord is in all caps, and Jehovah is in all caps, although they are different kinds of capitals, look at it, please. Jehovah occurs in the Bible four and a half times. It's one time in Exodus 6, it's one time in Psalm 83, and it's two times in Isaiah. One of the reasons we're excited about Isaiah is twice, And the second time it occurs, which is more well-known than this one, is Isaiah 26, where it says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, for he trusteth in thee, for in the Lord Jehovah, same as this construction, is everlasting strength. And that one's pretty well-known by people, because it's a great passage of comfort, Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. But we have it right here as well. Now, when God revealed himself to Moses... At the burning bush, Moses said, when I go back and ask that nation to follow me out of Egypt, they're going to say, who sent you? What name should I use? And God said, use this name. I am that I am. All caps. It's beautiful. You know, as a child learning that, that's the name of our God. You know, it's not Baal. God isn't a name. Please remember that. God isn't a name. God is a noun of a supreme being. But what's His name? His name is, I am that I am. And that's Exodus 3.14. And then three chapters later in Exodus chapter 6, God was encouraging Moses, and God told Moses, listen. My emphasis and the way I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was, Almighty God. Now that helps because when you've got a supreme being that's the almighty one, there aren't any others. That's the way I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Only you have I revealed myself this way. And you know what he said? It's Exodus 6.3. I revealed myself as Jehovah. Now wait a minute. Exodus 3.14 is I am that I am. Exodus 6.3 is Jehovah. Where did Jehovah come from? I am that I am is four Hebrew consonants that cannot be pronounced unless they're pointed up with vowels. And when they're pointed up with vowels in the, for the English language and for other languages, you got to have vowels to be able to pronounce it. It's Jehovah. Right. J-H-V-H. With vowels in there, Jehovah. And so the Lord tells us where Jehovah came from and what it means. I am that I am. And those four consonants are called the Hebrew tetragrammaton. Don't worry about that word. You don't have to spell it in a spelling test at the end of the week. You just That's what it's called, those four consonants. But when they're pointed up, it's Jehovah. And four and a half times in our Bible, we have Jehovah. So we have Jehovah, Exodus 6 3, Psalm 83 18, Isaiah 12 2, Isaiah 26 4. And there's a, I said four and a half times, didn't I? You want to see the half time? Holding your place at Isaiah 12, it's, It's uh, Psalm 68 and verse 4. Psalm 68 and verse 4. I want to show you that. You say, where did a half come from? Okay. When Moses said, what name do I give them? God said, tell them I am that I am sent you. And then he repeated it by saying, tell them I am sent you. Are you with me? That's a shorter, contracted version of I am that I am. I just, I am. Now that... I am is powerful all by itself. Right. You, you have to say, my father begat me and I'm only going to live 70 years and it's all over. Right. God can say, I am. I am that back then. I am over there in the future. I am. Without qualification. We have to qualify everything about us. If we say, I am strong, <laughs> just a little tiny bit. But he is, I am. But look at I. Look at Psalm 68 and verse four. "Sing unto God, sing praises to His name. He wants you to know His name. Right. Sing unto God, sing praises to His name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by His name, Jah, and rejoice before him. And that's, that's, that's Psalm 12. I mean, that's, that's Isaiah 12. That's Psalm 68, verse 4 that I just read, but that's, that's Isaiah 12. Ja. And so we have in Isaiah 12, 2, the Lord Jehovah is my strength. Now, the Lord has told us, and he told Moses, my name is Jehovah. My name is I am that I am. Jehovah equals I am that I am. I am that I am equals Jehovah. But the Hebrew scribes, by God's providential leading... Because if you don't believe it's God's providential leading, then whose providence was it? He led them in reverence for this unique name, I am that I am, and Jehovah, to substitute for it, Lord, Supreme Divine Ruler, in all caps. So that in a King James Bible, we have that Lord, L-O-R-D, all in caps. Whenever you see it, it's Jehovah. It's J-V-H-V. It's I am that I am, but it's covered with Lord so that they weren't saying it all the time to keep it special. How many times does Lord, in all caps, occur in the Old Testament for Jehovah? 6,559. 308 times It's God, in all caps, G-O-D, for I am that I am, Jehovah. And God chose to do it that way. So when you think about the last 10 years of our church, all of our praying, all of our talking, is our balance about Scripture's balance. Once in a while, we'll call God Jehovah. And the rest of the time, we call Him God, Lord, Lord God, Heavenly Father, Father in heaven, we, we describe Him by these adjective phrases for Him, but once in a while, we want to use the name Jehovah because the Bible does. Right. Four and a half times. Jah once, Jehovah four times. So a total of 6,800... That's a bunch of name-dropping. Yes. You know why? Because He lo- you know. There is JVHV 6,867 times, plus 4, in the Bible. And it's either Lord or God, because He loves His name. Did you you notice that He loves His name? Look at verse 4 here. Praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His doings among the people, make mention that His name is exalted. What name is exalted? God isn't a name. What name is exalted? He told you in Psalm 68 and verse 4. He told Moses when Moses said, Give me a name. When I go back, they're going to want to know who sent me. Give me a. He gave him a name, and we love that name. Amen. Are you... Amen. Okay, now let's let's go just a just a tad deeper here. I hope that that helps a little bit. This is unique. We have Lord Jehovah. Is it foolish, redundant repetition? No. That Lord L O R D is Jah the contracted form, and then you have the full Jehovah. And God in His providence arranged for us in Isaiah 12 and Isaiah 26 to have it in this format. It is nowhere else in the Bible. Jah Jehovah. Do I, do I get your... Does He get our attention Amen. by giving us His name in the contracted form and the full form next to each other? Where is your strength? My strength is only in Jah Jehovah repeated for emphasis of the fact that we have no strength without Him. Right. For the Jah for the, Jehovah is my strength and my song. There is no other God. There is no other true and living God. Jehovah is the true and living God and He's Jah Jehovah the two ways that He's presented in our King James Bibles. Taken from Hebrew scribes that in their effort to not dilute the name by too frequent of usage put lord and god 6867 total times except four and a half just to remind us what his name is god is not a name when you call god when you say almighty god you've just made it a name because you've taken a supreme divine being and made him the almighty now there's only one of those right. and so it becomes our god and that's how abraham isaac and jacob knew him but moses was presented a different way. And so we have it here in Isaiah 12 and verse 2. Yes, it, yes, the Jehovah's Witnesses go to the book of Isaiah to try to convince people that they are Jehovah's Witnesses. They wouldn't know Jehovah if He met them and tapped them on the shoulder because Jehovah has a son named Jesus. And what is the meaning of Jesus? Jehovah is salvation. Amen. Jesus is a fabulous name. We have two names that we care about the most of all. Jehovah and His Son, Jesus. And Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah, for Jah Jehovah, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. And the second half of that verse, after the words Lord Jehovah, are what Moses sang in Exodus 15, 1 and 2, when he stood on the far side of the Red Sea, and the Egyptian waterlogged, drowned, suffocated bodies were washing up on shore, and they celebrated with a song because God had saved them. But God has saved us from more than just being slaves in Egypt and from the Red Sea and from Pharaoh's army. He has saved us from the devil and from sin and from death and from eternal fire. And so we sang. And we say, he is our strength and our song, and he is our salvation. And we say it twice. We open the verse and we close the verse. And verse 3, therefore, as a result of this incredible deliverance, therefore, with joy, shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And so now, the prophet here, the speaker, turns to the audience that he's had for the testimony of verse 2, and he says, therefore, because of this great salvation... By Jah Jehovah, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. So we want to go where salvation is stored up and pull ourselves a drink as I began this morning with Isaiah 55 and take a drink to satisfy our souls, thrill our minds, fill our hearts with joy for our deliverance. By Jah Jehovah. Because he has saved us, and we're Gentiles. He didn't save us from Egypt. He didn't save us from Assyria. He saved us from the devil and his kingdom by right. translating us out of his kingdom into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. So in the second service, what are we going to do? We're going to go to Isaiah 53, and I'm going to draw you a few drinks. Amen. I was going to have you do it, but I'm selfish. I was going to write you on Friday and give the men of this church an opportunity to come up and draw us a drink from Isaiah 53 but I'm selfish. I did the, I allowed you to do that a week or two ago with the first 10 chapters of Isaiah and this is I want to do it. Okay? <laughs> Maybe you can have your chance on Wednesday night if you push me after this service because there's so many fr- only one phrase at a time. Don't you dare turn a garden hose on me. I want a drink. So when you go to Isaiah 53, it is one phrase at a time. And do you know how many phrases are in Isaiah 53? And every phrase is absolutely beautiful. Every phrase. Right. I worked hard to just pick one from each verse. So we'll have a few drinks. Real drinks. That's right. Wine and milk. Amen. After our break. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. The greatest joy that we should have is to find a choice verse, a choice angle on our salvation. Now listen, because you know these words. An unconditional proof, a phase, a facet of salvation and delight in it. Can can we delight in one facet of salvation? How about adoption? Does the Bible tell us, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. He didn't just justify us. If all He did was justify us, He returned us to a state of neutrality, poor definition of justify, or He made us righteous, but that wouldn't make us sons. The the concept of adoption, see, the Lord chose to use 18 different verbs in the New Testament to describe our salvation. So it's like a diamond. You take the diamond and you turn it and you get a different facet of a diamond and you get a different facet of salvation. Justification is a legal facet. Redemption is an economic facet. Adoption is a familial facet because we're brought into the family. Reconciliation is a relationship facet. We're reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And so we draw water out of the wells of salvation and take a drink and it satisfies our souls and we want to dance with all our might before the Lord. And if you don't want to dance with all your might before the Lord, I have to ask two questions. Are you saved? Are you in the flesh? Because why doesn't it excite you? In that day, verse 4. I'm going to be very quick now. And in that day you shall say, Praise the Lord. Call upon His name. Declare His doings among the people. Make mention that His name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, Thou inhabitant of Zion, For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Very quickly. And in that day, notice it. In verse 4, we have it again. It's in verse 1, and it was in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 11. I just want to keep you on track that there's timing phrases to tell us this is the gospel era of the New Testament kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is 2,000 years old and continuing right into including us. In that day, in the New Testament era, the people of God will say, and notice, it's now ye say. It's instruction for what they should say, which means it's instruction for what we should say. It's instruction for what we should say to each other. Praise the Lord. This, This phrase here, praise the Lord, this clause here, Praise the Lord is not actually praising the Lord. It is an imperative instruction to other people around you to praise the Lord. You say, but it's got a capital P. The Bible always puts a capital P when it's describing words that are being said. After it says, "Ye shall ye say," it always does that. Don't be alarmed by that. It's not actually praising the Lord here. It's telling others that they should praise the Lord. How do you know that? Just look at the next one. Praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Is that an act of worship, or is it telling others how to worship? Yes. Mm-hmm. Declare. That's an imperative verb to other people. Declare his doings among the people. Here's another one. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing. That's instruction. That's an imperative verb. Verse 6. Cry out and shout. This may not, You may not appreciate this, but we started out in verse 1 with personal communion with God... O Lord, I will praise Thee. And then I make my testimony in verse 2, and it should cause those that hear it to want to draw water out of the wells of salvation in verse 3. And then in verses 4 through 6, it is six verbs that we should have as a church of the New Testament of Jesus Christ worshiping God in corporate worship in six different ways. And here are the six different ways. Praise the Lord. And notice, it is Jehovah under the capital letters L-O-R-D. Praise Jehovah. Call upon His name. And every time we pray, we call upon His name. Every time we praise, we call upon His name. When I went to to the Psalms, in studying this out, and I'm chopping everything short right now, it'll be in an outline. The outline's done. It's all here in front of me. But uh, there's about 60 different uses in the 150 Psalms of David calling upon the name of the Lord because David loved the name of the Lord. In that day, in the gospel times, there's going to be such a deliverance for his people that ye shall, shall ye say, this is what we should do. Praise the Lord, Jehovah. Call upon his name. Give him the credit for everything. Declare his doings among the people. And that's what we did this past Wednesday at our men's meeting. Right. We had five men. We gave them the podium. Yep. We had 50 men here listening to them. And they described God's dots in their lives for giving them a believing Christian wife and for giving them a great profession with a great trajectory. And all we were shouting out to God yep. for the uh, two and a half hours that we were together for God's goodness in our lives. Amen. And so there it is. Declare His doings among the people, but... There's better doings than a wife and a job. Do you know what the doings are? Sending forth a virgin-born son that was raised up to take the throne of David and died willingly on the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended up into heaven, and sat down at God's right hand, waiting until his, all of his enemies be made his footstool. Now that is some doings. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. And you know what? I've done that to you today. I have tried to remind you that the name Jehovah is to be exalted, because that's his exalted name. That's his preferred name. And it is in our Bible, hidden just a little bit. See, I remind you all the time about the Lord with all caps. It's Jehovah. But if it was Jehovah 6,867 times, we would dilute its value to us. And so the Lord has arranged providentially, we have four and a half occurrences of it, so that we know what it is. But we just, we use Lord. Lord, we know what it is. Lord, Lord. You know, When was the last time Sherry called me Jonathan Rowland Crosby? Take, take a guess. Was it this decade? Probably not. She's never called me that. Why would she call me that? I won't tell him, Sherry. Make mention that his name is exalted, which we've just done. Verse 5, sing unto the Lord. Why do we have a singing camp? Why do we have a singing camp? Why was this past year? Where is she? Where are they? The 16th singing camp. One more year of singing camp than we've had Bible quizzing. 15 years of Bible quizzing. It was the 16th singing camp this past year. I went back and did a little historical research. So why do we have singing camp? So that we can fulfill this right here. Do you see That after all these deliverances, and these deliverances culminated in our deliverance by Jesus Christ, the son of David, in Isaiah chapter 11, after this, there is a personal connection with God. O Lord, I will praise thee. You are my strength and my song. You are my everything. You are my Jah Jehovah. I I will trust in you and fear nothing because you are with me. And therefore, we ought to draw some water out and take drinks every now and then to keep ourselves encouraged in that Lord Jehovah. Right. And then verses 4 through 6 are just six verbs to tell us what we ought to do as a congregation. We already know what to do individually. What should we do as a congregation? We should praise, call, declare, make mention, sing, and cry out and shout. And Zach took care of that last Sunday. But we need more of it. Amen. There should... See, when it says cry out and shout, we should be passionate. Right, right. You know, it was already mentioned about our brother Zach Hunsader when he was in this pulpit two weeks ago on a Wednesday night. He was very passionate about being in the pulpit and it was mentioned already in this pulpit today. And so we want to be passionate. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion. And that is the reason for crying out and shouting because God has made you a member of his virgin daughter of Zion. He's made you part of His chaste, true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion. God's made us a member of His city. When you go to Hebrews chapter 12, it says, whose names are written in heaven. There is a, there's a membership role of a different Zion. And there's a membership role of a different church. And it's the book of life. Amen. And we, our names are in the book of life. Right. We are inhabitants of Zion. And then the second reason... For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Where is God relative to his churches? In the midst of them. Where is Jesus relative to his churches? In the midst of them. Do you know what Jesus threatened the church of Ephesus with? If you do not repent and restore your first love, I will take away your candlestick and remove... I will take away your candlestick and remove him out of his place what is a candlestick in a church it is the presence of the holy spirit of god god's presence among us why should we cry out and shout because god has made us inhabitants of his holy zion which is above and because the holy one of israel the great god jah jehovah is in the midst of her right here we are do you think we ought to once in a while See if we can squeeze out a little praise, calling upon His name, declaring His doings, making mention of Him, and singing unto Him and crying and shouting with some passion. I think we can squeeze that out. Yep. And I did kind of leap over verse 5 that tells us why we should sing. For He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth, even in the Piedmont of the Carolinas, thousands of miles away from Israel. He's done excellent things, and it's known in all the earth. Without controversy, Paul wrote, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Amen. God was manifest in the flesh. Isaiah 7 and 9. Scene of angels. Justified in the Spirit. See, thank you, brother. Scene of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed in the world. This is known throughout the whole world. That's why we ought to celebrate. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. And we'll do a little bit of drinking in the second service from Isaiah 53.